0: This is Guns
1: and Butter. Uh, Thierry Maison was on the, uh, the, the uh, Libyan uh, television last night, and as that program was beginning, NATO contrived, apparently, to bomb one of the relay towers that was part of the, you know, sending that signal to the, to the main uh, transmitters of Libyan national television, so it's not just that they bomb to kill people, but they're bombing to try to prevent certain uh, information analysis from getting getting to the people.
0: I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Webster Tarpley. Today's show: Report from Tripoli. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of Against Oligarchy: Surviving the Cataclysm: A Study of the World Financial Crisis. 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in the USA, and co-author of George Bush, the Unauthorized Biography. His latest book is Obama, the Unauthorized Biography. Today we discuss his fact-finding mission to Libya, what he has been eyewitness to, the rebels in Benghazi, and analysis of the U.S. NATO attack on Libya. I spoke by phone to Webster Tarpley in Tripoli. E.
1: How are you doing, Webster? I'm okay. Look, this is chaotic. This is a war zone. You got to understand this. I'm sorry. This is—it's very hectic and it's very chaotic, and and the schedule is sort of made up from one minute to the next, partly because you know people are under a lot of stress because of this bombing. Sure. I haven't seen any explosions, but. You see a bunch of uh, bombed-out buildings and things, and you realize that you know, I've met people who have had their relatives killed, and it's just unbelievable. I would like to do this sort of as a first-person reportage, right? Less theory, maybe, and more sort of what do you see, what is it like?
0: Uh, absolutely. What are you doing there? When did you arrive, and who are you traveling with?
1: Well, I'm here in, in Tripoli, uh, Libya. I'm here at the, uh, the Rixos Hotel, which is where the uh, international media is based this is where the press briefings of the Ministry of Information take place and uh I've been here for some days and uh I'm traveling with a, a group of uh journalists who have come in sort of on a fact-finding mission and I would be delighted to share some of my uh impressions uh in the next uh, hour if uh, if nothing happens i would say everything around here is with a big if because we are under the Bombing attacks of these NATO air bandits uh, who come in usually at night, but not only at night, and they attack buildings and they are attempting to kill individuals. I mean, we are in a reign of terror. We are in an international anarchy, which I find absolutely revolting and horrifying, and horrifying to be an American taxpayer in the middle of this this monstrous Process. Uh, they're obviously attempting to kill the leader here, Colonel Gaddafi, who has been the, the head of the country since 1969. And i'd maybe at, at the end, a few words about what his actual track record is, because in some ways it's very impressive, better than most American presidents in these certain regards. But they're attempting to assassinate him, and they're also attempting to assassinate people in his uh, entourage. But it's not just that. Uh, you've also got uh, the attempt to cut off the supply of fish from the Mediterranean, right? This is a port. Maybe I just I just give you basically a kind of a cascade of uh, of sense impressions, right? And you stop me if, if there's something that you might want to know more about. Uh, this is Tripoli. This is a city of two million people plus. Uh, the port is a beautiful arrangement. It looks kind of like Baltimore, but much newer. This city, concerning cities of North Africa, well, the other one that I know is Tunis, and this is much more modern and in much better shape, uh, despite the things that have that have gone on. And so we're sitting here in this incongruous situation of a highly cultured center with people who are highly Westernized, because that's the the, the key to Libya is that this is a uh, a progressive. Uh, Arab nationalist regime. It's Arab socialism, uh, as as uh, as preached by Gaddafi. Um, and uh, you meet people, you know, speaking perfect English and French and so forth. And the, the whole idea of the Libyan government is they don't like Islamic fundamentalists. They don't like bearded obscurantists who want to oppress women and. Uh, and shut down modern civilization it's quite the opposite they're interested in 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 cultivating and obtaining uh and contributing to modern civilization so we're under a no-fly no fly zone and again no fly zone means in effect that you've got these air bandits who can show up at any time and when you go out on the uh on the terrace of your hotel room at night you can listen up into the air and uh up in the air you can sometimes hear the whine of jet engines there are um KC uh... one thirty five tankers of the british and the french and they've got uh... various uh, fighter bombers flying around up there they're cowards they're killing women and children from forty thousand feet this is a despicable exercise but you go out there and they they say basically that nato comes at night nato comes in the hour of the wolf at three a m or four a m so that's the time when you when you want to be sleeping uh, you, uh, you have to think twice because you wonder whether NATO is going to come and, and try to deliver one of their lethal uh, bomb loads. In order to come into the country, you can't fly in, right? Tripoli has a nice airport. You can't go there. You could, of course, in former times, go to Sicily and get on a ferry or go to Naples and take the ferry across, but they won't let you do that either. Uh, so there's a no-fly zone, which turns into a no uh, maritime traffic, no shipping zone—that's completely illegal. Uh, along with so much else that that these NATO bandits are doing. Uh, and as I said before, if you're a, if you're a, a, a fisherman here from Libya, and you want to go out and uh, get a haul of fish so you can uh, you know feed feed the population of this city of more than two million people, uh, a predator drone is going to come to visit you and try to try to blow you out of the water and kill you and 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 this is what's being done in the name of the united states Now, therefore in order to get into the country you gotta go to tunisia and you've got to uh... go down to the south of tunisia and then you come in by uh... by uh... by land right by bus or car or or van or whatever it is and the the first impression that you get is uh... you cross out of tunisia and into libya And uh, there are these checkpoints every 5 to 10 kilometers. And you you learn, within about an hour of driving, you learn that most of the NATO propaganda is absolute hogwash. Uh, Because what you see is that there are these checkpoints that are manned. And it's the Libyan army with Kalashnikovs, but they are joined by volunteers with Kalashnikovs. And some of the volunteers are women and a lot of times these are troops from various parts of Libya and a lot of them are black and that black is a, is an important thing because we know that these rebels up there in the Benghazi Darna Tobruk area uh they have a track record of massacring lynching uh black africans or indeed black tunisians right the province of Fezan right if you just look at Libya on the map uh, you 've got Tripoli in sort of on the upper left hand corner you 've got the Cyrenaica, the the Benghazi darna Tobruk area in the upper right hand corner, and then in the south of it like the sahara desert that 's tezan and a lot of people there are black or they're you know very dark and those are the ones who were uh, lynched and uh, and massacred by these wonderful pro democracy rebels uh, in especially in the first weeks of the rebellion but we 're finding out more and more that this goes on so you're driving across the libyan desert at night goes long long lines of trucks uh... looks to me like you know supplies continue to come in there these large sort of double trailer european trucks right? the kind of thing you'd see in 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 uh, in europe or southern europe especially and you go past and uh... you come to these checkpoints and uh... You really get the impression that, as far as the rebels are concerned, that their only hope is to infiltrate terrorists killers, into the populated centers, especially Tripoli, uh, and they're going to have a hard time doing it because Gaddafi has got these these um, uh, checkpoints set up, and the checkpoints enjoy very large popular support. In other words, uh, you see green flags everywhere. Uh, and the army is there, but the, the volunteers are there, too. And again, if you come to a checkpoint manned by women or a checkpoint manned by black women, and you realize that there's something uh, rather different about this and something I think highly, highly interesting. And I, just on the way in, I began thinking to myself, my God, this is the, the front line in the battle for civilization, because here is a modern state of Libya with really significant achievements It's confronting the forces of chaos and uh, terrorism and simply wanton murder. And these people are out there in the night, and that's the front line of civilization. In other words, you want to see the real war on terror, not the demagogic version, but the real version. They're they're out there in the night and and doing that. So by the time you get from Tunisia to, to Tripoli, you've gone past, I don't know, 40 or 50 of these uh checkpoints then as i say you know you look up into the night sky or listen in the daytime and you can hear the whine of the of the uh the, the nato jets now i'm told by people that so far i've been lucky here because uh, there hasn't been a whole lot of bombing uh in the area you do hear these thuds going off at night which are probably bombs you know at a certain distance but uh, it's hard to say what it is and you hear you know all kinds of things happening at night you wonder what what it is but generally speaking there, there there's a lot of public order here there's no no particular um danger uh going on at least at least so far although i must say uh Thierry May was on the uh the the uh, Libyan uh, television last night and as that program was beginning NATO contrived apparently to bomb one of the relay towers that was uh, part of the you know sending that signal to the to the main uh, transmitters of Libyan national television, so it's not just that they bomb to kill people, but they're bombing to try to prevent certain information analysis from getting getting to the people. Now, the other thing, of course, you see, is certain uh, compounds, certain housing has has been bombed to hell by by these NATO characters, and this is especially the compound, right, Colonel Gaddafi's compound uh here in Tripoli this has been bombed quite a few times and there are people there every night there are libyans out there who are volunteer human shields i mean nobody's forcing them they're there because they want to be and you've also got some europeans a few of them but they're there, there there's one guy in particular who's been sleeping there the whole time and he wants to be a human shield too so uh that, that's one one such site i've been taken to see the villa where Gaddafi had, uh, had lived, and uh, this villa was bombed right at the end of April and the beginning of May. And in the course of that, one of his sons was killed, and three of his grandchildren, I believe, were, were also killed. And you'll remember the, the rebels in Benghazi were dancing in the streets that night. They put on that, that spectacle of barbarism and, and horror for the benefit of world public opinion. And you, uh, you walk around this compound, uh, Gaddafi had a, he had a petting zoo, and then one, according to one version, the way that he escaped the bombs was that he had walked over to this petting zoo that he had there for his, his grandchildren. He was, he was feeding the animals or, or something, and that's the moment when the bombs come down. Now What NATO seems to be using, it's a projectile that's laser-guided, and it divides into eight components that go through the roof, and then they blow out the, uh, the buildings. We got to see the uh reception hall where Gaddafi would greet state visitors and I would say this is a model of sobriety and humility. there's nothing opulent about it, nothing bombastic about it. it's not luxurious it's, it looks kind of like a an upper middle class rec room or t v room uh with some nice uh you know sofas and and armchairs but nothing uh, you know no no gold no you know crystal, nothing uh nothing out of the ordinary, and you get the idea of Gaddafi as, as somebody who's essentially living at a rather, rather simple level, and he's not, he's not stealing money from the state to, to build himself, you know, diamond-encrusted uh, bathrooms or anything like that. It's all very, very normal in that sense. So that was an attack at the end of April and in the, in the beginning of May.
0: I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Report from Tripoli. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is guns and butter.
1: You know, just before I got here, there was an attack on a villa or compound uh, outside of uh, Tripoli. This is a place called Sorman, S-O-R-M-A-N, seventy kilometers west. And this is the home, and, and still is uh, the home of a guy called Al Hweldi El Hamidi, and this would be A L. K-H-W-E-L-D-Y. This, I guess is, this is the name you can go by. This al-Queldi was one of the five or so generals who took part in the coup d'etat against the feudal uh, relic King Idris, who had been imposed on Libya by the British at the end of World War II. So Gaddafi and, and, his, uh, and his associates kicked out this king, and al- kwedi had been had been part of that, and then remained as one of the key people in the uh, in the Gaddafi regime. And one of the things I saw in this bombed-out compound there was a picture of Al-Queldi who did survive. He wasn't there, so he's still alive, at least as far as I know, meeting with President Nasser of Egypt. And to me, I think that that means something. It reminds you of this idea that that people used to be aware that there's such a thing as militant nationalism in the third world sometimes you'd have you know military governments typically colonels be it Colonel Gaddafi or Colonel Nasser or Colonel Chavez a little bit more recently and that these people are anti-imperialist and anti-colonialist and that's a pretty damn good thing for the world we live in although it's obvious that they're not going to be perfect right they're going to be authoritarian they're going to have uh, any number of other problems but that again if you look at Nasser this is the way historical progress has been made uh historically that's the way it has happened, so Al Alkhdi goes back to to Nasser now he wasn't there. Uh, who was there? Well, ten people were there his His son was not there by the way his his son is an engineer trained in the United States, as American as anybody and and we met him there and the The poor man is is devastated because his wife was killed, and two of his children his wife was uh Safa, she was killed. Um, A little girl who was four years old and would have been five on the 28th of June, she was killed. A four-year-old son was killed. And another child of a related family, uh, a six-year-old, was killed. This was four days after her birthday. An elderly aunt was killed and a, uh, a cook from the Sudan and and his wife right, two black africans immigrant workers they were killed and again it was the same thing this nato projectile that comes down divides itself into six to eight parts and blows out an entire compound and it seems to strike only the buildings uh... it it struck a tent which had been used for marriages in the area and uh... the here also there was a petting zoo petting zoo with an ostrich that we saw some deer pathetic tableau of this thing was one of the deer had been wounded in the nato bombing attack and this deer was still on the ground and they said they had been having trouble getting the vet to come but the vet was coming the next day and there was every hope that the deer would survive but these ten victims didn't survive so uh, the young engineer wasn't there what his job is is he takes care of charity work for the Refugees that come from the other side, and there was there's a flow of refugees out of Benghazi, dharna and Tobruk, and I was present here on the docks in Tripoli the other day when a boatload of refugees came from the wonderful democratic paradise of uh, Al Qaeda. I guess there's only way to put it over there in in Benghazi to Tobruk, and so they they were fleeing. And the NATO uh, pirates out there in the water, were, they were willing to let this ship come through. So these refugees got off. Now The job of, of engineer al Khweldi is to create these um, tent uh, complexes and, and other facilities where the refugees can go. They're often refugees from black African countries where the governments are incapable or unwilling to take back their own people. So uh, we went there. And he came out and he said, here's what NATO did to me. Here's what NATO did to me. And then he, he shows you the graves of his wife and his two children and other members of the family and so forth. And uh, more than one person in the group broke down crying, and I guess that included me. I thought this was the most horrendous and monstrous and reprehensible thing I guess I've ever seen in, in, in my immediate experience. Um, and this is being done in your name. This is being done with your money in your name by the wonderful peace angel Obama, the recipient of the Peace Prize of the Swedish Nobel Committee or whatever that is.
0: Webster, were you able to speak with any of the refugees that arrived by boat from Benghazi?
1: Here's the, here's the problem with that. Most of them didn't want to talk because they were afraid. Uh, and here's how it worked. A, a lot of them, uh, got off the boat and just wanted to go away. I mean, we, we saw that there was a whole media scrum there. I talked there to the, uh, Ernesto Londoño, the, the correspondent of the Washington Post. The Associated Press guy was there. Uh, RT Arabic was there, right? Hopefully doing something constructive. Um, Telesur, Venezuela, they were there. Uh, Sun TV of Hong Kong. Some of these I did interviews with and they may, uh, have come out or, or maybe they will come out. Um, there were a number of women who were dressed up in the full burqa, right? Fully covered, you know, full niqab I guess, uh, you know, completely covered. And you got the idea that some of them were doing that, you know, quite possibly because they didn't want to be recognized because a lot of people just didn't want to be recognized because maybe they still had relatives back in the uh terrorist controlled area. So it was interesting to see the woman from the first program of the French national television. She immediately made a beeline over to the woman wearing the black uh, niqab, and she wanted to, to show her. And the idea was to try to create the impression that the people on the boat were Islamic fundamentalists who were coming to embrace Gaddafi, whereas, of course, it's the reverse. They were people who were fleeing from the Muslim Brotherhood and al-Qaeda in the, in the rebel uh, terrorist-controlled uh, areas. So no, I couldn't I couldn't uh talk to them. So th- those are the the, the couple of, of things that I've seen and then you can look, you know, not far from the foreign ministry, there's a building that has been completely wrecked by bombs and indeed that's the, uh where there had been a hotel there. So, you know, maybe under other circumstances this now abandoned hotel might have been where somebody somebody was staying, you know, and uh and then you'd be dead. So this is also by the way the justice ministry the, the complex with this hotel is on the same block which got flattened by by NATO there were um uh, the justice ministry the office of the attorney general as well as the Gaddafi Green Book center and the Green Book is is Gaddafi's ideological treatise which has been around since uh, I guess the early early 70s and he he wants to you know make this into a kind of a manifesto of Pan-Africanism, because w- one of the things you hear here in uh, in Libya is, you know, we're sick of the Arabs. Uh, you know, they they have been, you know, they're rolling over for for the U.S. and uh, and so forth. But the African states are uh, somewhat better. When you're sitting in Tripoli, you are looking out at the Mediterranean and Europe, and you're looking across the Maghreb at, at Algiers, and you're looking over at Cairo across the Sirenaica. But you're also you're looking down into Chad and. Uh, and and sub-Saharan Africa. And a lot of the the foreign policy is is dependent on this. Now, in terms of the military future here, because I guess that's unavoidable, uh, you look at this place, I think this is about the last place in the world you want to think of invading. Uh, I would really warn people, don't do it. Uh, A preface to that is, you would think that with this kind of mayhem being visited on a Educated, advanced population. This is the most advanced population in Africa. But the most educated, the most developed. Libya under Gaddafi is 57 on the UN Human Development Index. That's tops in Africa. So they've gone from, they've gone from rock bottom in Africa and the world to tops in Africa. And they beat Russia. They beat Ukraine. They beat Brazil. They beat all kinds of people, because the oil income, frankly, has been used and. Uh, if you get married and you want to start a family, you get a free house or apartment uh, and you get all kinds of family allowances, payments and social safety net that we would dream of in the United States. So, um you'd expect that if you're if you're bombing a country like this to hell, there'd be a lot of animosity. You you know, you might get lynched in the street and I would have to say it's it's absolutely the opposite. There isn't there is no animosity towards individuals, right? If you're coming from one of the, one of the mad bomber powers of NATO, that they, they don't blame you for that. They know they're very sophisticated. In other words, nobody is spoiling for a fight. It's not like they're they're you know thinking of revenge. But if people come here in arms, they really better watch out because one of the things Gaddafi has done, and I think this is another important fact that undercuts all the NATO propaganda. Is that he's he's distributed one to two million Kalashnikovs and and you know assault rifles to the to the population. This is now uh, probably one of the biggest concentrations of automatic weapons in private hands anywhere in the world, and it's not just that; it goes beyond that. Uh, I was talking the other day here to a very um, cultured man uh, who had been an ambassador, and uh, perfect English, perfect French, um, and he said, "Well, we really hope that." that nothing more happens militarily, but if it should, he said, let me just tell you the military capabilities of my household. He said, my household, we probably have four RPGs, and everybody has a Kalashnikov, and the women have a Kalashnikov. And he said, we therefore figure that we would be able to knock out four tanks and maybe a platoon or something like that so multiply that and you'll get an idea of what it is now the other thing is what would be the organization of such a national resistance well it is ready-made there are these tribes uh... everybody talks about tribes right everybody um is a member of a tribe or just about everybody and when you meet people you know they they might explain you know i'm a member of the second biggest tribe or i'm a member of the biggest tribe or i'm from this tribe or that tribe so it means that there's a ready-made form of military organization in the form of the tribe with, let us say, the greatest degree of small-unit cohesion that you could imagine. In other words, this is deep ties of blood and and uh, blood relation and uh, could hardly be more cohesive than it's going to be.
0: Uh-oh, Webster, you don't see these tribes fighting with each other? Are you saying they... No,
1: not the ones here. I mean, essentially, it is, I think, it's probably one or two tribes in this Benghazi area, the sort of Sanusi organized oriented uh, tribes. The Sanusi being the royal family of King Idris, right? There are some tribes that were the ruling class under King Idris, and those are largely the ones that are rebelling, at least as far as I can understand it. And so the pro-British satellite tribes who were the basis of Idris, who were the court and the bureaucracy of this reactionary, monstrous King Idris regime, they are the ones who still have grievances, right, that Gaddafi opened it up to other tribes, and and they didn't keep their privileges. That's underlying the whole thing. But the tribes that are dominant around here, uh, there's no inkling of support for the rebels in, in Tripoli that, that I saw at all right They'd Rather, he's had these million person demonstrations on the 17th of June. There were a million people plus in the street. So out of two million in the city, a million were out there.
0: I'm speaking with economic historian and author, Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Report from Tripoli. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
1: Let me just also give you the, the, the demographic breakdown. The Syrenaic the uh, uh, Benghazi, Darna Tobruk, that's about a million people plus. But over here, it's about five million people. So it's five million to one million. And indeed, the part on the Benghazi side, they don't have the population with them. What's going on on the Benghazi side is enough to, uh, to alienate anybody. It's... Uh, it's a situation where you have, I've heard estimates anywhere from 15 to 35 armed factions among these rebels who are probably fighting each other. Remember that there is this, uh, this Benghazi rebel council there, and uh, more than, what, two-thirds of the members are secret. You're not allowed to know who they are. And, and the, the explanation, right, the pretext for that that they offer is that uh, they can't reveal the names of these wonderful pro democracy people because then Gaddafi would persecute them. And I think the answer is no, it's because they're from Al Qaeda, right? Or a Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, which is the is the same thing. Now, there's also the the essence of anarchy going on in Benghazi. Something like this. The presentable characters or more more presentable than others. You have this guy Jalil who was a minister in the central government Jalil seems to be sort of acting as the prime minister. And you have, uh, Yunus is another former minister of the central government who is the, uh, defense boss, right? The military boss. You have Jabril. This is, uh, Hillary Clinton's boyfriend who's been cohorting with her. And he's sort of the, the internationally presentable face of this, uh, this operation. And, uh, you've got a couple of others, but the military commander who came in from Northern Virginia where he was, you know, within about ten miles of CIA headquarters in Langley, need I say more, is a guy called Hafter. And here's the problem. Eunice is the defense minister and Hafter is the supreme commander of the military forces. And they don't get along. They're in a rivalry, right? And I'm sure there are other rivals, but this this is one of the most dramatic rivalries that we have. And here's how they acted out. Let's suppose we have a um, a company of uh of troops, right? These characters riding around in these pickup trucks with machine guns on the back. You've seen them. So, let's suppose we have a company that's loyal to Yunis in one position. And then next to it in the line, we've got another similar company that's that's loyal to Hafter. So, we've got the pro Yunis forces and we got the pro Hafter forces. What they do is to call in that NATO airstrikes on each other. The Haftar guys get on the phone to NATO and say, "NATO, we want you to know that there's a dangerous bunch of Gaddafi people right over there on that hill." And, you know, the other ones do the same thing in reverse. And the word here in in Tripoli is that that's one of the reasons why NATO is constantly bombing rebel troops
0: that's reported in the papers all the time, Webster. That they made a mistake and, and bombed their own rebels. Yeah,
1: except it's not a mistake. This is the faction fight between Yunus and Haftar. See, Yunus had been been in the country pretty much. He'd been in the Gaddafi government, and and Haftar, of course, Haftar was a CIA operative in, in the Sudan and then in Chad. You will remember in the 1980s there was this big deal about Chad. Uh, it was one of the one of the points of conflict with the. With Gaddafi, so um, that's how they fight, and that's that's one of the reasons why NATO tends to bomb the rebels that they're supporting. It's not it's not that they're incompetent; it's just that they're getting fake information from their own side, right? As each unit tries to get the other one blown up so they can take over and and you know dominate the 33 billion dollars in in oil money. So, so there we have that.
0: Now with regard to the compounds that have been uh, bombed in Tripoli proper do you know how the targeting of these compounds is done by NATO
1: Yeah this is this is important first of all again this is assassination right this is murder but NATO then always says we believe that these are military you know bases that they're dual use and so forth well I've been to the Gaddafi compound, and I've looked through all of it, right? I felt it was my duty to look around and see if there were, you know, secret bunkers. I couldn't find any, and the place was, you know, pretty much laid open. The targeting that I do know is the case of this uh, Sormon, right, the place where the uh, the Kualdi family was, 70 kilometers west of Benghazi. Now, here's the story. You had infiltrated spies working for the, the rebel... Or terrorist uh, command, they seem to have gotten themselves up into an uh, some kind of a radio transmission tower, maybe a microwave FM transition tower, and these people had uh, small lasers, and they painted the roof of some of the buildings with their lasers, so that that was going to then guide the bomb, or this contraption, right? This thing that breaks up into eight significant bomb. I wouldn't call it a cluster bomb, because a cluster bomb gives the idea of the sort of shrapnel of a large area. This is really more like, you know, eight individual bombs, right? They're going to strike, you know, the, the various buildings in the compound. So these characters got up in the, in the um, transmission tower. They used their lasers to point them down at the roof. And according to the Libyan people that we talked to there, this was done through Twitter, isn't that wonderful? The social media, Twitter that somehow some part of the tip off went through through Twitter, right? So what a wonderful new use that NATO has developed for the for the social media. So that is what I know about that. I really don't know any more details.
0: Uh, this is the hundredth day of the bombing of Libya. Uh, According to the BBC, on the military front, the rebels have advanced some six miles toward Tripoli in the past 24 hours. The rebels seem better armed in this strategic area than elsewhere in the country, adds BBC's Mark Doyle on the front line about 40 miles southwest of the capital. Doyle saw several pickup trucks full of rebel soldiers in clean uniforms and new-looking rocket launchers and rifles heading for the front line. Uh, have you heard anything about
1: this? Well, uh, yes, in, in the sense that, that the the reports that you get about the movements of the rebels from the BBC are manic, exaggerated uh, reports. But the basis of, of this is there is this sort of southwest of Tripoli area, which is critical because that's one of the one of the land access routes to get to the outside world that had been closed down it had been cut off for a couple of days about 2 weeks ago i believe and then it was reopened by the by the loyalist uh, government forces but what i what i have been told is that an airplane loaded with weapons landed in this western mountain area which is pretty much what you're talking about right west of uh, of Tripoli right on the tunisian border uh, which is an area that NATO is seeking to control. They want to have, uh, if possible, foreign troops in Tunisia, on the Tunisian side. Then they, they would, of course, then come across into, into Libya. So the, the weapons have been brought in. Now, need I say, this is a flagrant violation of this UN Security Council resolution. It makes a mockery of the whole thing. You're not allowed to fly into Libya. doesn't matter who you are. Uh, so they can fly in. Uh, an airplane, right, probably a French or British military airplane transport, loaded with, with uh, sophisticated weapons, and land that in the Western Mountains, and then hand that out to whoever, you know, whatever of these bearded characters are around there. You've also got the same thing going on in the East, right? That, that, that there's huge traffic coming in from Egypt, right? NATO sending in stuff through Egypt, across that highway, and then the, the land route there. Uh, so it's all a complete violation of the of the uh, of the resolution, and there's nothing in the resolution about cutting off fishermen in the Mediterranean. that's also purely gratuitous and and again, even stepping back from whatever the resolution is, we now have this situation and and people here in Libya tell you about it. the entire United Nations is in a huge crisis of legitimacy. What good is this? contraption right or this machine as de Gaulle called it right le machin this thing what is this thing where the five permanent members can decide on uh measures against libya which are in flagrant violation of the charter right the charter says that chapter 7 right coercive measures by the security council apply only only to international peace and security threats to international peace and security that is not what you have here nobody can even allege that And by the same token the flip side of that is interference in the internal affairs of sovereign states is strictly prohibited and these really are the bases this this didn't start you know with the u.n. in nineteen forty five this is the treaty of westphalia pretty much in sixteen forty eight that system of european states Um, So what what they've done with this Resolution uh, 1973 is to throw out all of the accumulated body of international law since the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648, and these are lessons which have been bought at a very dear price, and just throw that out and say, well, from now on we can interfere when we want, when we want, and we can declare a no-fly zone. And once they have the no-fly zone, it means they can bomb anything they want, anytime they want, and they can always say, we believe that this was a dual-use technology. A guy was telling us today that the Libyans wanted to import some uh, some four-wheel-drive vehicles so that you can maintain uh, supplies to isolated communities in the desert, right? Because you're talking about... this is This is a place where the Sahara Desert comes right down and sort of falls into the Mediterranean. I mean, there are points where... It's pretty much desert until it becomes, you know, breakers, right, the ocean. So you need four-wheel-drive vehicles. So the answer from NATO, no, nope, dual-use could be used to, to persecute our wonderful democracy fighters here in, in, uh, in Darna. Anyway, this is a monstrosity from beginning to end. This is war crimes. This stuff is all ripe for Nuremberg. In other words, a lot of these these people, right, be it Rasmussen of NATO and uh, you know, the U.S. government, Sarkozy and Cameron, and Susan Rice and all these people, they they really ought to think about what those Nuremberg precedents mean because they've crossed the lines that were drawn at Nuremberg. I'm afraid.
0: What about the Libyan people, for the most part? What sense do you get of people's sentiments about Gaddafi and the NATO attacks? Is the citizenry organized there? How is the government functioning?
1: Yeah, look, this is a a system of government, which is this uh, people's congresses, right? And we talked to a guy who is part of the administration of this. He said they have 468. Town meetings—that is the basis of the government—is direct democracy, in the tradition of the New England town meeting, particularly the the Vermont town meeting. So they have 468 of these units, and uh, the laws uh, essentially reflect an agenda. That is, there's a phase where the the town meetings elaborate an agenda, then that goes to a central point, and then it's sort of sorted out. That agenda then goes back to the town meetings; they've got to essentially approve it. And then when they have laws, the laws are essentially uh, it requires, I, I guess, a majority of the of the town meetings. And they say the point of this is not representation but participation. In other words, you're not just voting, but you're you're called upon to you know to do this periodic. It's like a it's like the Iowa caucus, except it it goes you know I don't know what it is, whether it's once a week or a couple of times a month or or what what the occasions are. And that there's a whole body of stuff about this. So. It seems to me that there's, there's very significant uh, public uh, support. And again, you see it in the million people coming out. You see it in these volunteers who come out and, and man the checkpoints.
0: I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Report from Tripoli. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. With regard to Gaddafi and uh, IMF and World Bank, uh, Gaddafi was actually working with the IMF in the last few years, wasn't he?
1: Well, he was under threat of immediate U.S. military attack, right? After 2003, he, he made a lot of concessions to the U.S. because he felt that he was threatened by an immediate invasion. You won't have any trouble finding people in the government that tell you this was a terrible mistake. Uh, there was a general uh, International Monetary Fund uh, demand for privatization of virtually everything uh and that extended to Egypt to Tunisia to Algeria to Morocco to Jordan basically everybody in the Arab world by 2003 2004 was under the gun and this is indeed one of the key critical mistakes that he made was to somehow barter you know no no immediate armed attack he thought uh, vis-a-vis uh having this uh privatization because this meant that the level of unemployment as i understand it went from virtually zero to something much higher, especially for some younger people. So that was a, that's a terrible mistake, right? And the problem with the IMF is, you know, nobody should, should listen to them. Everybody should kick them out.
0: Who is defecting from the Libyan government?
1: The word on that is uh, from one guy I talked to here in the government that uh, they had some rats in the government, and uh, he's got a speech about... The advantages, in other words, what are the benefits that Libya has derived from this you know terrible experience? but there are benefits, and one of the benefits is all the deep cover agents that had been infiltrated and put in there, and that would start with this guy, Musa Kusa, the foreign minister, that most of them have had their strings pulled and they've gone back to the west, which is where they were always working right they 're back to the NATO. Countries that they've actually been working for, so the rats are out. Um, these demonstrations start now. These are these are not peaceful demonstrations. They may start with people who are unarmed, but their goal is to break into military bases and steal weapons. They want to, you know, break into arms depots and arsenals and uh, and get their hands on weapons. The bigger the better, right? Be it you know a, a, a Kalashnikov. Or, an RPG, or a light tank or a heavy tank, or an artillery piece or a machine gun. it's It's really a mistake to think that these were peaceful demonstrations by these Benghazi people. They were um, largely led by al Qaeda, and the we know who the leaders are, right. This Hassadi had been a prisoner of war of the United States in Pakistan, and he was there facilitating uh, fighters from Derna. And Benghazi to go to Afghanistan and and um, and, and and then later to Iraq uh, to kill the, the the U.S. forces. So he he was uh, let go by the U.S. and uh, somehow turned up here in Libya once again. And then even more uh, outrageous is this guy Kumu or Gumu, uh, K.U.M.U. And Kumu was. He's the one who's known as the chauffeur of Osama bin Laden, his driver, but more than a driver, he was an advisor. This is not just a just a flunky, but so, this is somebody who participated or, or you know had some input into strategic decisions. So these are the people leading this rebellion. And Hassadi, uh, when 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 Hassadi and Gumu and and their friend Barani from the Libyan and Islamic Fighting Group, when they were exposed as being the, the triumvirs of uh, of Derna right the, the triumvirate of terror in Derna with these three Hassadi Kumu and Barani running the the city council they were hustled out of there for a while uh and apparently they they went to Egypt according to one report that i've heard but then they're back and they, they're now taking part in the Misurata campaign the the uh, Gaddafi people here are very optimistic that the, the Misurata rebellion is going to be quelled by, you know, the end of next week, you know, 10 days, or something like that. The, the noose is tightening around these these terrorist forces in, in Misurata.
0: The International Criminal Court has just issued an arrest warrant for Libyan leader Colonel Muammar Gaddafi for crimes against humanity, accusing him of ordering attacks on civilians early in the armed rebellion in February of 2011. Yeah, let's just,
1: again, let's just look at what that was. It's pretty much what I was just saying, that the the way that this started was 14th, 15th of February. Marches of temporarily unarmed civilians, led by al-Qaeda fighters and operatives, uh, went in the direction of Libyan army bases and, uh, and, and arms depots, and they got themselves armed as soon as they could, and they then began slaughtering any uh, Libyan army soldiers that they could get to, and lynching and killing numbers of black people, be they black Libyans from fezzan or black Africans from Mali, from Chad, from Sudan, or Somalia, or or other places. Because there are a lot of lot of foreign workers here, so that's that's what it is. Uh, this international criminal court is an obscene joke. That guy, Ocampo, he is the head of it. That is an imperialist stooge of the first water. Uh, this is an instrument of imperialism. It is used to persecute the enemies of NATO and the United States, right? Did they indict Rumsfeld? Did they indict Bush? Did they indict Petraeus? None of them. But they go after people like Milosevic, who then gets basically murdered before any verdict is given, and uh, Bashir of Sudan, and and on and on. So it's this is a kangaroo court. And when it comes to the I believe one of the counts in this indictment is this this fantastic story that Gaddafi ordered Viagra so that his soldiers would be able to do more rapes. This is absolutely insane. There's no proof. It's all hearsay. That's the one thing you can say about this whole Libyan adventure. It's hearsay from beginning to end. Remember the speech of the Brazilian delegate to the United Nations Security Council who said, we really wonder why there is no report by the Secretary General to the Security Council saying what happened in Libya. There never has been. It was all hearsay. It was all Al Jazeera reports that Gaddafi was slaughtering civilians. There is no proof. It never happened. Rather, the evidence of slaughter is on the other side, right? To being black in Benghazi, that was something that could get you slaughtered. But uh, there's no indication that, for example, when Gaddafi say took over, you know, Brega or La- Ras Lanuf or some place like this or Ajadabia that there was any slaughter because you know he'd taken a taken back a uh, a place that the rebels had had momentarily uh, uh, conquered. So there, there's just none of that. Ocampo what does he know about rape? Well, according to an authoritative French source here, Ocampo knows about rape because he was accused of having done it. And uh, there's a story circulating among European journalists that Ocampo was the beneficiary of a payoff, that the guy, the witness, whoever it was, woman or man, I don't know, but the the, the witness who accused him of carrying out this rape was, was paid off by... By the International Criminal Court, and I, I don't think that's surprising when you realize what a lawless political instrument uh, that is. And I, I think this, this El Campo has no credibility. He's about as credible as Roland Freisler in the Third Reich, who was notoriously Hitler's hanging judge. This is what it is. And again, I'm, I'm still waiting for the Rumsfeld indictment and the Wolfowitz indictment and the uh, you know the rest of those.
0: According to the BBC, the Hague-based court also issued warrants for two of Colonel Gaddafi's top aides, his son uh, Saif al-Islam and intelligence chief Abdullah al senussi Now, was this the son who visited the U.S. State Department just before the fighting in Libya started?
1: There, there are two sons. The confusing thing is, and I hope that I've, I've cleared this up for myself, is that Gaddafi has he has a number of children. But there are two sons named Saif, meaning shield or defense. And one is Saif al-Arab, who I believe was killed. And Saif uh, al-Islam is the, the son who was studying, I believe, in California at the time that the that the destabilization started and the military putsch was uh, was called, so those those are the two uh, different ones. And some again, some of his grandchildren have been killed. This is not new. Remember, one of his daughters was killed by Reagan back in 1985 when the La Belle Discotheque false flag operation was used as a pretext because it was manufactured. There was no Libyan role. This was a false flag operation designed to give the U.S. a reason. To go and bomb Tripoli, and you see that here. I mean, that's that that wrecked palace from 1985 is a is a you know national uh, monument. I'd probably ought to mention just in the course of all this, since Lockerbie comes out in the wash. Lockerbie was done by the CIA to itself with the help of Syrian arms merchants, right? The rogue Syrian elements taking part in the um, in the arms trafficking in the Bekaa Valley of Lebanon, and uh, the uh, the the purpose of this was to kill a team of drug enforcement uh, administration people and destroy the evidence that they had, right? Tangible, physical evidence that could not be replaced was blown up. uh, And and that would have been the DEA pointing out massive drug running by the CIA at that time. And that's back, of course, in the Oliver North Iran Contra era where that sort of stuff was, was going on.
0: Does Italy want to end its involvement in the NATO attack on Libya?
1: The the Italian story here is a pitiful one because they're one of the main victims. Let's just, we just go back. There was a secret treaty signed on November 2nd of last year between the British and the French that they were going to attack Libya. The code name was already picked, South Mistral. That was then made into the Arab uh, version and it was what the Mistral. The Mistral is this wind, but that's what you call it on the northern side of the Mediterranean. Uh, on the southern side of the Mediterranean, if I can just look in my notes, it's called Armatan, Ham uh, Hamatan, or something like that. So that's ultimately what this what the, this thing was codenamed. And of course, we had the protocol chief, one of the rats. Somebody who was close to Gaddafi, who was lured by the French. This guy's name is Masmari he was lured by the french to paris and then he was uh... bribed and cajoled and blackmailed and whatever to becoming a turncoat and he uh, then uh... helped with the uh... with the, the defections the military defections of some officers of fairly significant rank in the benghazi uh... area so that's where it uh... it started Now the italians were the ones who had the most to lose and all this they're the ones who get twenty five percent of their their gasoline or their oil, at least from uh, from Libya. They're the ones with the most investment. So the idea was that the British and the French began attacking Libya, the Italians, because of the unfortunate weakness. They were um, really forced to to join in the war in order not to be completely frozen out of the, of the post-war. This is sort of how Berlusconi responded to the Iraq war when he, he wanted to maintain the interest in Iraq of Eni the Italian state oil company he he um he joined in the attack but the the Italian contingent just went into Iraq and went went to guard the property of the Italian state oil company and that's all they did uh this time around the Italians are 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 losing uh, even more it's been a a terrible humiliation for for Italy
0: what do you think are the motivating factors in the U.S. NATO war against Libya?
1: Well, the obvious thing is to steal the oil, right? The best quality oil in North Africa, right? Libyan light crude, it's the best. It's uh, you know, it's 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 absolutely uh, you know the, the easiest to refine, and so forth. Let me just add also water. Don't don't underestimate water. You look at a country like Yemen, Yemen will soon have no water. And I don't mean a shortage, I mean no water. Uh, so human life in Yemen may be uh, nasty, brutish, and short. By contrast, Gaddafi put $32 billion into the great man made river. All during the 1990s, this was being built. It was the largest civil engineering project in the world in many of those years. It was often the largest, uh, I think just about always, the largest irrigation project in the world. It involves digging wells in the Sahara, in hundreds and hundreds of miles south of where I am, and then putting that water into a pipeline and bringing that up to all the cities that are along the coast, above all, Tripoli, e, 2 million people, and the largest, Benghazi, then second largest, with, with something less than a million. So you can say that whereas human life may have no future in Yemen, Libya will live, as long as NATO doesn't bomb the great man-made river to hell. But I think it's more likely that they're going to try to steal it. In the course of this, a large steel mill was built in Misurata. One of the reasons the, the rebels wanted to attack Misurata was because of the steel mill, which was capable of building the biggest steel tubes in the world. So it means not Manisman of Germany, right? The usual gold standard for uh, for steel pipe, and not some company in Japan, but an African Arab country, which you know in 1950 had been probably either the poorest or one of the poorest countries in the world, with just you know Bedouins and Tuareg. Uh, Libya has the ability to build the biggest steel pipe of anybody in the world. And there's also a large petrochemical plant in Ras Lanouf. So that's part of the, uh, of the development. So if you look at Libya, say, what's valuable in Libya? Oil and water.
0: Webster Tarpley, thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much. There's something happening Yeah, yeah. yeah. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man
0: with a gun over there. I've been speaking with Webster Tarpley. Today's show has been Report from Tripoli. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of Against Oligarchy, 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in the USA, and co-author of George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography. His latest book is Obama, The Unauthorized Biography. His prescient economic work, Surviving the Cataclysm, A Study of the World Financial Crisis, is now out in paperback. Visit his website at www.tarpley.net. That's T-A-R-P-L-E-Y dot Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To make comments, order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Visit our website at gunsandbutter.org. That's G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Hey, yo, these are some serious
1: times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now, the question is: Are you ready for the real
0: revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find
1: that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now, if you take heed to the words of On the lookout for
0: the spirit snake trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what inside yourself for peace. Give thanks, live life, and release. You dig me?